Okay, thank you so much, Dave, for lifting that up. That's no mean feat. I hope you can see me on the live feed as well. I did just move the uh, focus there a little bit. Um, before I begin, I'm just going to say a quick prayer because we, we do, even though we're doing it virtually, we'll take up a little offering uh, virtually. I posted a link in the chat, so if you do want to give today and you haven't already set up a standing order uh, to HCC and you, you want to sew in, uh, you could do that either by clicking the button in the chat or you can go to the website. There's a give page there, really easy to give there. So uh, if you want to do that and sew in to what God's doing through this community, uh, you can do that. So um, just give you a moment to find that page or that button and then we'll, we'll pray. I did want to just thank you as well, church, and those of you watching online um, for just starting us... Try not to feed back too much there. Just starting us off in such an amazing fashion. Uh, financially, you have been so generous. And um, the stuff we've been able to do, honestly, in the first like four months of being a church, from going from meeting on Upper Green with five of us in a field um, to here now um, is just incredible. So I wanted to thank you for your generosity. Dad, can we just take the game down a little bit, please? Thank you. <clears throat> So let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your spirit, which is a spirit of generosity. And Lord, as we gather together this day, that you'd move in our hearts, Lord God, and that as you do, you would provoke us to be both generous and cheerful givers. So whatever it is you've laid on our heart to give today, we pray, Lord, we'd be able to do that cheerfully, knowing that we're not giving to humans, we're not giving to mere natural things, but we're giving to God, and we're giving him what is his anyway. So, Lord, we thank you for all of your grace upon us today. We thank you for every penny in our bank account and we thank you, Lord God, that you, you have given us the freedom to be able to change our community and our city with what you've put in our pockets. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Well, we're going to be back in 1 John today again. I think this is the 16th week now that we are in 1 John. And it's been quite a journey. And uh, I have just over half an hour to share with you. I have quite a lot to get through. Um, Dr. Rowe will be up like a shot um, if I start yeah, tapping his watch. If I start edging over the 35-minute boundary, I uh, don't want to hold you hostage today, especially in a warm room like this. I can already see some heads starting to nod, so uh, Mike needs. Uh, so <laughs> so I'll, I'll try not to keep you, try not to keep you too long, but this stuff is just too good um, to, to pass up the opportunity to really preach. Um, so there we go. So we're in 1 John chapter 3 and verses 7 through to 10, which reads like this. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
And no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident that those who are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Many theologians and commentators have called this epistle, the first John, the epistle of assurance. How many of you know what assurance means? Or you have a grid for it. Assurance is simply the assurance of our salvation. It's a doctrine. And it's a doctrine that can give us a kind of confidence that we really are Christians. Because what the Bible teaches is that not all who claim to be Christians, we've talked about this before, truly are And that's not something that we often hear preached in churches today. But it certainly is the teaching of Jesus, as he mentions in John 4. uh, Those true worshippers will worship me in spirit and in truth. And by saying that, what's he implying? That there are false worshippers. And this is something that is highlighted again and again and again in the New Testament. In fact, I heard uh, Costi Hinn mention the other day, he's uh, one of the Hinn family who has uh, become reformed. And he he shared this fact that I think he said there's 26 of the 27 letters um, in the New Testament mention false teaching. 26 of the 27. That's pretty high figures, isn't it? But how often do we actually talk about false teaching in the church? Rarely ever, apart from in HCC, where we love it. We love to talk about it. Um, So this book is all about assurance, and by studying it, um, we are reading back into the past, and we're, we're reading the Apostle John encouraging a group of believers to actually draw up categories in their minds whereby they can judge whether they're truly in the faith or not. So it gives us a benchmark right now here in the 21st century to know whether we're really Christians, whether we can have assurance of our faith. And assurance is a wonderful thing. It's a very Christian thing. There is no other faith in the earth that truly gives a believer or a follower of that religion an assurance, a confidence that one truly is going to be saved. If you've ever witnessed to Muslims, um, that is one of the key areas that I will witness to them on is that there is no assurance for the Muslim. Uh, They don't truly know whether what they have done in earth is going to be enough uh, in the eyes of Allah uh, when that day of judgment comes for them to actually make the grade to be in paradise. Whereas with us as Christians, because what gets us from here to heaven is not our works, but his, there is an assurance that we can have uh, of our salvation. And that's what this epistle focuses on. There are several tests, that's what we call them, and that's what theologians call these um, proclamations in 1 John. They are tests of whether one is truly a Christian or not. R.C. Sproul said that the following tests are these. Number one, communion with God is demonstrated by acknowledging sin and Christ as the provision for sin. There's the first test. If we say we have communion with God then we have to acknowledge our sin and we have to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the only provision for our sins. The second test, R.C. Sproul says, is that genuine faith is discerned by the end time tests of righteousness 
and love. So if we say we're Christians, if we say we have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, then we're going to see a few things. We're going to see righteous activity and we're going to see real love, real love uh, coming out of our lives. Thirdly, genuine faith is discerned by the end time test of correct belief in Christ uh, in contrast with the world and the antichrist view of Jesus. So correct belief, doctrinal belief, theological belief is actually an important thing. Um, you don't have to be doctrinally perfect because nobody is. We don't believe in um, inerrancy of an individual, uh, but we do believe in the inerrancy of scriptures. And we believe that it's possible through the Holy Spirit to conform our beliefs to what the Bible says. Amen? So beliefs are important. And nowadays, that's, that's somewhat of a shocking statement to make, isn't it? We live in a postmodern society where, as Bucky shared last week, you know, what's important is my truth. It's not the truth, it's my truth. That's what matters. But in fact, the Bible says, no, no, your truth has to be conformed to the truth. Um, and therefore, as, uh, as the Bible teaches, we Christians must do theology. Uh, we must do our homework to understand what the Bible sets forth as truth. Who really is Jesus? Uh, is he really the Son of God? Is he truly the God-man? Uh, it, it is uh, important that we conform our beliefs about who Jesus is to what the Bible teaches. And fourthly, uh, R.C. Sproul says that the uh, fourth test up to this point in 1 John of whether one is truly a believer is discerned, again, by the test of righteousness. Righteousness. Not in terms of the righteousness which has been given to us by Jesus, but by the outflow of righteous activity in our lives. And that's where we are today. At the end of chapter 2, and the beginning of uh, this chapter, chapter 3, the Apostle John begins to touch on this issue of righteousness, of right living. 1 John 2.29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Why will a Christian live a life of righteousness? Because Jesus is righteous. That's what the apostle says. And they have been born of him. Now the Greek verb there is gegenetai. Try saying that three times fast. Um, it's actually a perfect verb. And in Greek, that basically tells us that something's taken place in the past. Something's happened in the past, but that the state that we're now in, right now today, has been affected by that event in the past, if that makes sense. So you have been born of God in the past, and you are still born of him today. It wasn't a one-time event that ended, but there's a state that continues because of that event that happened in the past. So what is it to be a Christian? It is to practice righteousness. How and why does a Christian practice this righteousness? John says, because they have been born of God. Born of God. We can't move any further, I don't think, in our exposition of this passage without taking a moment first to dwell on those three words. Born of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the doctrine of what we call regeneration. How many of you heard of that before? The doctrine of regeneration. And that means the doctrine of the new birth. How many of you understand when you're a Christian, you are born again. You're born again. 
And there's nothing commensurate with the doctrine of regeneration in any other world religion. I don't know if you realize that. It's the linchpin of Christian salvation in Jesus Christ. And debate, this is a good one because debate has raged over the centuries about this doctrine of regeneration. It is and always has been and always will be scandalous to the naturally minded person. Why is it scandalous? Because this doctrine tells us that God effects a critical change upon an individual. Not in response to anything that they've done, said or believed, but simply according to his own will. Jesus, when speaking to Nicodemus in John 3.3, no, John 3.3, I'm sorry, not all the threes, just two. He's talking to Nicodemus, who he refers to as a teacher of Israel, doesn't he? He doesn't just say a teacher of Israel. He says, you are the teacher of Israel. So this is no, um, this is no insignificant chappy. This is somebody who is well learned. This is somebody who certainly knew the scriptures and was a teacher of the Jewish religion. And this is somebody also who would have felt that they were born right the first time round. Uh, they were born a Jew. And we all know that one of the famous pharisaical prayers from antiquity was that I thank God that I am not a Gentile or a woman. <laughs> oh, there was another one, wasn't there as well? Um, but <laughs> we don't have to pray those prayers anymore. Amen. Um, because we recognize Jesus' words. He said it's not good enough. Nicodemus, it's not good enough that you were born a Jew. You need to be born again. You must be born again. The imperative, it, it's not an addition to one's life. It's a must. Uh, the needs must that you be born again in order to see the kingdom of God because you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. I used to think that being born again was kind of like being a Christian 2.0. Right? I used to think that's what that meant because in the 80s and 90s, there was the charismatic renewal. Many of us came out of established church movements. I grew up in that. And what we would refer to ourselves as was we're born again Christians. Now, I picked up from that that there were Christians who were not born again. So I figured they were the kind of 1.0 Christians and we were the 2.0 Christians. We were the brand new edition. And that being born again was kind of a post-salvation thing. It's something that happened after you got saved. And there was this kind of um, experience that you had that suddenly supernaturally just made you kind of different and better than all the other Christians. You had a cool testimony. You were able to walk free of sins that had beset you before. But now you're born again. Um, I, I didn't realize that it was something that needed to happen for every Christian. I didn't realize that. It wasn't until I, uh, as, a, uh, as a pastor, began thumbing through a theology book about five or six years ago, and I remember reading something that stunned me. Um, I turned over a page and began reading about this doctrine of regeneration, the new birth. And I called a friend into the room, and I said, hey, you've got to look at this. This is incredible. In this book, it says that God makes us born again before we have faith in him. And the guy was like, wow, that's, that's incredible. Uh, we don't believe that here, but that's cool. 
<laughs> and I said, oh, okay. So I decided to do a bit more reading into this doctrine of regeneration. And the more I looked into it, the more it became very clear to me from Scripture that the new birth, you being born again, is something that God does. It's something that only God can do. It's not something that I can make happen. It's not something I can bring about of my own free will or activity. This is something I'm dependent on God for. In John 1, uh, 11 through to 13, at the beginning of John's gospel, we get these words. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were made born again. They received Jesus. They believe in Jesus. He gives them the authority, the power to become children of God. And this is something that the apostles says is not by their own will. It's not something they made happen. They were born of God. It's not something that they got because they came from a particular genetic background. This is something that God did, all of grace. Well, maybe you read that and you think, yeah, but Graham, doesn't it say that they first received him, that they first believed in his name, and then they were born again? Yeah, it does say that. However, the Apostle Paul has this to say to those claiming that it's one's faith that makes one born again. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, he says, listen to this, and you were what? You were what? You were dead. You were dead. You, you weren't alive. What can a dead person do? If you're dead, can you have faith in anything? Can you think thoughts about God? Can you consider how much you need salvation? No, because you're dead. A dead man can do nothing. And Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This is strong stuff. Like the rest of mankind. This is a blanket statement for all of mankind. They were all dead. They were all sons of disobedience, all children of wrath. By nature, this is something that they could not change. This is naturally who they were, this is our identity. They were not all children of God. Sadly, this doctrine that we were all children of God has crept into the preaching of many churches and that God is just up there trying to get his children to believe in him, but he's actually powerless to do anything about it. That's not a Christian doctrine. That's a pagan doctrine. The Bible teaches every single person has fallen under the curse of sin, which was brought about by Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. And therefore, all outside of Christ are not children of God. They are children of wrath. In fact, this verse here says that they are children of the devil. Not my words, not the words of, words of reformed theologians. 
the words of your Bible. So if a dead man cannot do anything, this is what Paul has to say about that. The dead are helpless. There's nothing a dead person can do to achieve salvation. They are helpless. But then these two words appear in Paul's discourse, which just should give you hope. Do you know what those two words are? But God. But God. Being rich in what? Mercy. Being rich in mercy, praise God. Because of the great love with which he's loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Did you catch that? He made you alive. You were dead. You were not out there just seeking God. There's no such thing as a God seeker according to the Bible. We were helpless. But God, being rich in mercy, with the great love with which he's loved us. This is good news. This is the gospel. Do you understand this? This is the gospel message that we preach. The helplessness of man. The wickedness of mankind and the goodness of God. Unless you get that contrast clear, there's no gospel. There's no gospel. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace through faith. Not by faith through grace. By grace. Faith is simply the medium by which you hold on to the grace of God, which has been given to you not because of what you believe, not because of what you do, not because of who you will be, because of God's mercy. Now listen to this and catch it. And this faith is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. How many prosperity preachers need to hear that today? Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your faith is not truly your faith. It's the gift of God. You were dead, helpless. You had no capacity to come to God. You could not make yourself born again. But God, in his mercy and in his love, he made you alive. Amen? You could breathe, sure. You were walking around. When Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, sure, you could go to Primark. You could go out to a National Trust site. You could have a cup of coffee. You could engage in loving relationships with other people. You can have a family. It might seem to all like you're very much alive. Paul says this deadness that you had was that you could not respond to God. You were spiritually Dead. It wasn't that you would not come to God, it's that you could not. You didn't have the capacity, not without God's intervention. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able, do you hear that? It's a matter of capacity. He's not able to understand them for they're spiritually discerned. 
This is the key thing, I think, when we're preaching the gospel, because we all should be preaching the gospel, amen? And I want you to understand and be encouraged that that doesn't always mean you have to stand up behind one of these. It doesn't mean that you have to stand on a street corner. Um, it can look like in a friendship, having a conversation with somebody. It can look like encouraging somebody and telling them about your testimony and ensuring that you talk about Jesus in that. That can be preaching the gospel. But when we do this, we have to understand that we are not talking to somebody who's a neutral. We're not talking to somebody who is not predisposed to any which way. They're just waiting to hear the right evidence. No, we're talking to somebody who's dead in their trespasses and their sins. They do not understand the things of God. In fact, Romans 1 says they are haters of God. Does that mean that they are gnashing their teeth all the time and uh, reading Christopher Hitchens' blogs and getting all wound up about Christianity? No, not necessarily. Uh, that's not necessarily the definition of what a hater of God is. And we'll get onto that in a minute. But I think what we need to recognize and take away from this statement here that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit is simply this, that in evangelism, do not get confused when people who you're preaching the gospel to reject that message do not begin to think it's about you don't begin to try and change that message in order to make it more appealing to somebody the reason they reject that message is because they are dead in their sins and trespasses and guess who's the only one who can make them alive again? It's not you. It's God. So we continue to preach the same message. We do not change the subject. We don't try and make it more palatable. We don't try and tamper with the gospel in order to make it appealing to goats. We preach the same gospel that Paul preached. And we rely on the Lord to do the saving. And we pray for those souls. None of you or I sat in this room today would be here if it were not for God. None of you were predisposed towards Jesus at birth. You were all born in sin. You're all wicked sinners. Amen? You know that? Without God, I was a hell-born sinner. And there's nowhere else I would end up. We're dependent on the grace of God. Understand this, when the Bible says that you're a hater of God, I want you to understand that you were. And I want you to understand if you're listening to this today and you're not a Christian, you're a hater of God. You might think, well, no, I'm not. I've, I've, I've always believed in God. I, I, don't, I don't hate Christianity. I don't get riled when I hear the Bible. I'm, I'm open to these ideas, but here's the deal. Anything less than worship is hatred of God. Any attitude which is not down on your face, crying out with praise and worship before God, is hatred of God. Why? Because God is the only being in all of the universe and cosmos in which we live who is ultimately worthy of all adoration and praise. And when we refuse to give him that, guess what? That's hatred. That's contempt. 
It's like Jesus said, isn't it? If anybody wants to come after me, he must what? His mother and father. He must hate them. Does that mean that they've got to go, ah, I hate you, mom. You know what? I didn't enjoy all those meals you made me back in the day. I hate you. No, he wasn't calling them to be nasty and vindictive. What he was saying is, you've got to love me more than them. You have to value me more than you value your mother, your father, your family. It was a comparative hatred. And that's the same kind of hatred with which we hate God. It's not necessarily that we're like a Hitchens or a Dawkins. We're frothing at the mouth. We can't wait to make another video about how absurd Christianity is. No. It's simply a refusal to treat God in the manner with which he is deserving. Does that make sense? I want you to see before you leave today how dependent on God you are. How absolutely dependent you are on him. How dependent you are on the grace of God to make you born again. He was the first mover in your salvation. 1 Peter 3 uh, sorry, 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 3 to 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. There's that word again, mercy. You don't get mercy unless you're receiving something you don't deserve, do you? But this is consistently used by the apostles in the New Testament. Mercy. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. He caused us to be born again. Ezekiel 36, 26 prophesies this magnificent doctrine of regeneration this truth and it says this and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh what are the effects of this magnificent doctrine I want you to understand this today and go away understanding something of the doctrine of regeneration this is incredible this is the linchpin of your salvation Without the Lord coming and making you born again and causing your heart to change, you would never have chosen him. Does that make sense? I was talking to Dean a, a, a while back now, sharing our testimonies, and we were looking back and thinking, we may not be able to always understand theologically the order in which everything happens in our salvation, but certainly when we tell our testimonies, we see that it was the Lord that moved first. When we look back, we see a change in our hearts, a dramatic change in the heart. And a, a turning from one type of behavior and one type of attitude towards God to another. Often it's in our testimonies that we can truly see the hand of God moving supernaturally to cause us to be born again. So what happens in this new birth? Well, first off, a new life comes and lives within you. It's a new life. The Holy Spirit himself, the third person of the Trinity, comes and lives inside of you. I want you to understand this. The, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you. Yes, we know that, Graham. So what? Listen to 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 13. This is about the Holy Spirit. And this should give you some indication of what's happening in your heart. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything even the deep things of God. Did you catch that? The Holy Spirit knows the deep things of God. So if the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you, and that Spirit knows the deep things of God, guess what? You begin to catch a glimpse. Imperfectly, yes, but still a glimpse of even the deep things of God. Now we've received 
Not a spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words. Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. The spirit comes into us. He begins to reveal to us the hidden things of God. The deep things of God. Things that are sometimes inexpressible. We begin to understand, we begin to see, we begin to hunger for and yearn for. The Spirit comes into us, He transforms us, He gives us life. Not just any life, but eternal life. The same life with which Jesus is alive today. Did you understand that? When you're born again, you're not born into an individual new life that God created specifically for you. You're born into the very same life that Jesus has. It's incorruptible. It's never going to end. If you've been born again, even though this this outer shell is going to be cast off someday, I will never die. Do you ever consider that? That when you're born again, you will not truly ever die. You'll live forever. That's a crazy thing to think about. It's like imagining that the universe has no end. Do you ever try to do that? Your life, the born again life, will never end. Why? Because that life is the self-same life that Jesus has. And he will never end. He's had no beginning. He'll have no end. And your life is now his life. It's shared. And so therefore, you will live forever. Again, I want you to capture this. I think... I agree with a guy called Randy Alcorn. I'm reading a book about heaven at the moment. When we think about eternity, sometimes, because of our sinful nature, we can think, that sounds a bit boring, to be honest. Is it just me? You know you do it. What are we going to (laughs) do? Right? I think the devil's been up to his old tricks in that area. And his job has been to rob the church of its excitement for eternity and for heaven. You're not going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp for eternity. (laughs) It's going to be a lot more exciting than that. The Holy Spirit works in us, doesn't he? He's not dormant. He doesn't come and live within us and stay silent. He works. He produces. You know, the Holy Spirit, John says, is like a seed. I want for us to catch this. If we plant an apple seed in the ground, and it actually manages to grow, it's going to grow into an apple tree, and we're going to get what? We're going to get apples. If we plant a pear seed in the ground, and miraculously we get that thing to grow, I don't always have much success with propagating things or growing things, but... Let's say it does grow into a tree. What fruit are we going to get? We're going to get pears. Now, if there's a God seed planted in you, God is going to do what? He's going to cause that to grow. What fruit is it going to bear? Godly fruit. Godly fruit. And that's how works of righteousness come into your life, through godly fruit. Now, one of the effects of the Holy Spirit growing in us is that 
we begin to hate our former works. We begin to hate sin and love righteousness. I don't know if you've recognized that, but there's a desire in us to be rid of sin. We can't live in it any longer. And that's the great point that Paul's making, isn't it, in Romans 5 and 6. He's accused of something called antinomianism. Try saying that, antinomianism. That's what he's being accused of. And what he responds when they say, so if, if there's grace that covers all sin, then why not just keep sinning? You know, if grace always outruns sin, just keep sinning. Then grace will abound. And Paul says, now the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that in sin, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? That's antinomianism. To continue in sin so that grace may abound. He says, by no means. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So antinomianism is that. It's, it's this idea that we can somehow just continue in sin. It doesn't matter because grace will abound. I want you to imagine just for a moment a speed dial. And on one side of that speed dial, you've got legalism. That kind of Christianity that pushes you back into the law and the way that you make God pleased is that you try to attain every single one of those laws. And then on the other, sen- other side of that meter, you have something called antinomianism. And basically that's the idea that, you know what, just God loves me so much, he just doesn't care how I live. He just loves me. So it doesn't matter what I do. I can take drugs, I can sleep around, I can blaspheme. I can sin however I want. Now, these are the types of people that John is warning his his readers against, antinomians. Uh, We can deduce that because the the book of 1 John tells us that they believed these things about themselves. They believed they had true fellowship with God. They believed, secondly, that they had no sin. You remember back in chapter 1? He says, if we say we have no sin, we lie. Right? Thirdly, They didn't abide or live by Jesus' commandments, but they still claimed to be Christians. Now, you might be listening to this and think, well, that's all well and good, Graham, but this is 2,000 years ago. We live in the 21st century. What possible danger can we be under from antinomianism today? Well, actually, there's a very popular form of rank antinomianism at large in the West today. And do you know what it's called? Progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity, that's its name. It isn't by any stretch progressive, but it has teachers such as Rob Bell, Rachel Held Evans, Brian McLaren, and Nadia Boltz-Weber. And essentially what they say is that biblical teachings, particularly those about sexuality, gender, order, and morality, are outdated. They're outdated, they're passe, and that they have to be reimagined for the modern world. Don't take my word for it. I want you to listen to a quote from Nadia Boltzweber. We should not be more loyal to an idea, a doctrine, or an interpretation of a Bible verse than we are to people. If the teachings of the church, catch that, are harming the bodies and spirits of people, we should rethink those teachings. How many of you understand 
that the teachings of the church should be the teachings of the Bible. And the teachings of the Bible are the teachings of God. Now, if God is holy and pure and righteous, and we are sinners and haters of God and children of wrath, guess whose teachings we're not going to like? God's. These teachers, false teachers, take biblical words like holiness, sin, righteousness, and they redefine them. They redefine words to mean other things than they actually mean in the Bible. And the sad thing about that is unsuspecting Christians can easily be snared and tricked because these people use the same words that they do. It's so sad. But these false teachers mean very different things than the Bible does when they use them. I want you to listen to Nadia Boltzweber's definition of holiness for a minute. Holiness is the union we experience with one another and with God. Holiness is when we become more than one, sorry, when more than one become one. When what is fractured is made whole, singing in harmony, breastfeeding a baby, collective bargaining, dancing, admitting our pain to someone and hearing them say, me too. Holiness happens when we are integrated as physical, spiritual, sexual, emotional and political beings. Holiness is the song that has always been sung, perhaps even the sound that was first spoken when God said, let there be light. Holiness happens in those moments when we are blissfully free from our ego and yet totally connected to ourself and something else. Now, whatever that's a definition of, it's not a definition of biblical holiness. It's a lot of words. Some of those words are nice. Some of those concepts may be nice, but it's not a definition of biblical holiness in any stretch. These teachers go on to affirm all sorts of sexual sins from homosexuality through to polygamy through to extramarital affairs. For them, these sins are not sins. They're holiness because they're an expression of love. I want you to see and catch how perverse that is. John's warning against this type of so-called Christian. Now, a true faith is always going to beget what? Holiness. An increased sense of purity, an increased awareness of one's own sinfulness and need of Jesus Christ. As James says, faith without works is dead. It's not true faith if it's not followed by righteous acts. Martin Luther himself said, a living, creative, active, and powerful thing is this faith. Faith cannot help doing good works constantly. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher at Westminster Chapel last century, he used to say that any good gospel preacher would always be accused of antinomianism, just as Paul was, simply because this gospel that we preach is so heavily loaded with grace. It's not based on our works. So we preach grace, right? We preach a grace that will always outrun sin. There's no sin that you could commit as one of God's chosen that could disqualify you from his grace, But we must always be aware that this doctrine that I'm talking about today of regeneration, this doctrine of regeneration involves a living seed. And in fact, the Greek word is sperma, right? So we're talking about God's seed in that sense, going inside your life and making you pregnant with good works, making you pregnant with God's good, holy works. It's kind of a weird thought, but that's literally the idea 
that's in John's thinking here. So this seed is going to be effective. It's not going to come into your life and then you're going to be able to carry on doing whatever you're doing. Living in sin. It's impossible. John goes even further. He says that this new birth is so powerful that it actually, in many ways, incapacitates us to sin. He says that those who were born of God cannot sin. That's literally what it says in the original language. I know the ESV actually translates it as it cannot go on sinning. There's a reason for that. But in the original language, it doesn't give you that. It just says it cannot sin. So this being born of God incapacitates you to certain forms of sinful behavior. There's lots and lots of blogs, angry blogs about contradictions in the Bible, if you care to look online. Um, and this verse is actually the subject of many of those blogs, uh, 1 John 3.9, because it seems to directly contradict another verse earlier on in the same book. 1 John 1 verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Chapter 3 verse 9 says, you cannot sin. How can those two things go together? How can on one hand we say we have no sin, we're a liar. On the other hand, we cannot sin. How on earth do those things go together? And it's frightened a lot of Christians, this verse has, because we can freshly remember our sins. They are burnt in our consciences and they're not too far removed from us in terms of time. So does that mean I'm not a Christian? Well, there are some theologians that are just happy to lay down the tools and say, yeah, it's a contradiction. It's a contradiction. John has contradicted himself in the space of the same letter. I personally don't think that's very likely. I mean, I am no great um, writer but I'm pretty sure I could write a letter without directly contradicting myself in such a blatant way. So I don't think we should have such low faith in John. There are others who have tried to claim that what John's saying in verse 9 about not being able to sin is in effect a quotation. And it's a quotation of the beliefs of these antinomians. But I, again, I don't really see there's any evidence for that in the original text. And then still others will claim that John's meaning, well, we cannot sin in a kind of idealistic way. You know, we, we shouldn't be able to sin. But again, I don't think there's any reason for believing that uh, straight from the original text. Um, the ESV probably gets hold of this pretty well. And there are one or two other, I think the NIV maybe as well gets this. Um, that what, what he's actually saying here is something more akin to cannot continue in sin. Uh, that one who's been born of God cannot continue in sin. Th there are some who say that that's because John chooses to use, I know we're getting geeky now, but because he uses a present tense verb um, for sin, to sin. And uh, there is an understanding that the Greek present tense can mean a continuous action. But it's not always the case, I'll be honest. There's lots of other places in the epistle where he uses a, a present tense Greek verb and it's not meaning a continuous action. The reason why I think the ESV is right is because earlier on in verses 7 and 8, he uses what's known as a present participle, which is basically carrying the meaning of the one who is doing these things, which definitely does have a continuous action. And so if he's using that sense of the one doing righteousness, the one doing sin in verses 7 and 8, 
we can be pretty confident that that's also what he means in verse 9. That he hasn't suddenly changed topic and now he's talking about a different type of activity. It's a continuous lifestyle that he's mentioning. So I think we, we are confident in believing that he's talking about a lifestyle. A Christian cannot continue in sin. They cannot live a lifestyle of sin. There's something that's actually even more radical, and I've got just a few minutes left. I want to just hit this before I finish. There's, there's an even more deep radical truth to this idea of the born-again Christian not being able to sin. I don't think it's actually what John's referring to here, in fairness to him, but I, I want to just mention it. Because in our union with Jesus, and this again is a huge, great truth that I would love to delve into more, but I don't have time. Our union with Jesus, the Bible teaches that his death is one. It's our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. Okay, We share these things in common with Jesus. Now, because we've died with Christ, we've also died to sin. We're dead to sin. And so Paul says... In a very real sense, because that's true, because we've died, when we do sin now, and we do, as John says in first chapter and eight, we do slip up occasionally, we do sin. When we do sin, in a very real sense, it's not us that's doing it. I want you to read Romans 7 with me, 14 to 25. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it's good. That is, the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, the physical body. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a new, sorry, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That is in the born again inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That is in my body. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see. What Paul is saying, and I can't get into it too much today, is that in your physical body, he calls it the body of sin or the body of death at times in Romans. Sin dwells in my physical members. There will be a day when this physical body is cast off and there is no remnant of that sin left in me at all. There will be no sin in heaven. We know that. But while I still carry my physical body, I will always do battle with sin. Although the born-again person within hates that sin and wages war with it. So to finish off with, you can't make a practice of the things that Jesus said he expressly came to destroy. 
It says in this passage, doesn't it, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And what does it say about the devil? That he was sinning from the beginning. Not from the beginning before time began, but from the beginning there in the garden. It was his sin that led to Adam and Eve, wasn't it? He deceived them. He questioned the word of God. So when it says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, what does it mean? He came to destroy sin. You can't be making a practice of the same things that your Lord came to destroy. If you are, then John has grave news for you. You're not a child of God. You're a child of the devil. Not in the same sense that one's a child of God. Let's be clear about that. The devil cannot create. He doesn't make his children. He doesn't cause them to be born again. But in the Bible, one can be a child of something by doing the same things as that individual or that spirit does. It's strong stuff. So I just say to you today, are you making a habit of sin? Are you making excuses for sin? Are you allowing that sin to reign in your life? There's a difference between tripping up occasionally and living outright in sin and excusing yourself for it, isn't there? I would encourage you, don't carry on that way. Romans 6 says that only leads one way. The wages of sin are what? A death. Turn to Jesus. Repent. Be born again. Perhaps if you're a Christian and you're freaking out, thinking, well, maybe that's me. Perhaps you've just slipped into bad habits again. We know through the Old Testament, King David, his great psalm of repentance in Psalm 51, we, we know it's possible for a believer to go through seasons where they slip up. And they enter into a sin that previously they lived in. Have you slipped into a bad habit? Then confess your sins. As John earlier says in the same book, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to finish off by reading this section of Romans 6 to encourage you. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Amen. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves. Listen to this. Consider yourself in your mind dead to sin. That's how one begins to see the demonstration of Jesus' victory over sin in your life. That we must actually consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't let it. There has to be activity here. There has to be a will involved, a mind on your part involved in making sure sin doesn't reign. Because the devil certainly wants it to. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize that these truths for us are hard to grasp sometimes. But in them we find, Lord God, that you are absolutely sovereign over our salvation. 
that you have caused us, Lord God, to be born again. You've made us alive together with you. It was your hand of mercy and love and grace that saved us. So Lord God, we cast ourselves onto you today and we pray, whatever our state might be, that you'd have mercy on us, we pray. And Lord, I pray for any brothers and sisters today who are here, who may be struggling with sin, who may have slipped up this week, that you'd work in our hearts today and that we'd swiftly come to you and confess those sins. And in so doing, be cleansed of all unrighteousness. And God, I pray for strength in the body of Christ here today. Strength not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Not to let the devil have his way, but to fight and consider ourselves, reckon ourselves dead to the things which once had a hold of us. Dead to addiction, dead to pornography, dead to sin, wickedness, licentiousness and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Give us the strength to stand up and wage war against the flesh this week. In your mighty name we pray. I know I ask just Pip and the worship team to come up quickly and uh, I know we've gone over a little bit today, but I appreciate your time. Um, we're going to sing uh, one more song, if that's all right. Um, and as they come, I want for us to just stand. And if there's anything you'd like prayer for today, if somebody could just lift this off stage as well, a couple of strong peeps, that would be really helpful. Thanks. If there's anything else we want prayer for today, whether it be a physical condition, or if it's something that you feel you need prayer for after today's message, I'd be more than happy to pray for you, as would any of the leaders, Dean, Ruth, um, and Mike and Sue, my mum. Um, Rob and Carol would love to pray for you. Um, so just come and tap one of us on the shoulders if you'd like prayer for anything. But let's finish off with an act of worship. <laughs>